Well, it is good to see you guys. Good to see some of you guys online. Hope you guys are all doing well. Appreciate you guys, again, participating in our kids' stuff. We, we love, we've heard some feedback from parents talking about how kids make this feel like it's part of their service, and, and I love that aspect. Plus, it's fun to see some of you adults have to get up and move around a little bit, so that uh, some, brings some joy to myself. I, I will say today will be a little bit different for kids. On the back of your sheet you got is a bingo card. Yes, it corresponds with my sermon, and so if you hear me say these words, you can mark them off, and once you've heard them all out, listen, here, don't let your parents look at you right now, listen to me. If you mark all four in a row off, you at that point get to scream bingo as loud as you want in the middle of my service. Now, you adults are like, what's going on here? That means the kids listen to my sermons. So don't act like, you know, Dave Harder, this might be good for you to get one back there. I don't know. So if you yell bingo in the middle of service, you're not going to offend me one bit. You guys do that. That means you're listening. So that will make for fun. Same thing with you guys at home. I think you can go download it online. Uh, this will make it a unique service, I think, nonetheless. So... I uh, hope you guys are doing well. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Ecclesiastes. Yes, we're still in Ecclesiastes, and we are almost half, halfway through. Uh, hopefully that does not just draw dread in your life. Hopefully it's uh, encouraging you, encouraging you. I'd be curious to take a poll of how many of us have actually read and studied Ecclesiastes before this. Uh, it's a very interesting book that, uh, again, many misunderstand, uh, but it has uh, a lot of good truths for us, so. As you guys are turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I want to ask you guys to discuss with one another. I like to just uh, address and talk about stuff in our own life, but with, with the people you're around with, answer this question. What would you do if you know you only had four weeks left to live? Now, I know that sounds morbid, and that's not meant to be, but it's a question we maybe have discussed or asked before. If you knew you only had a few weeks left, what would you do differently? So real quick, with the people you're with, answer that question. What would you do if you knew you only had four weeks left? What, how would you... Uh, do that. If your answer is not come sit through another sermon of Eric's, that will mean you need to talk later. That was not one of the options on the board. Not Definitely not on the bingo card, for sure. <clears throat> I don't know what your answers would be, whether it would be you would go eat somewhere, you would go spend more time with people, do things differently. Uh, th this question was actually proposed in a Bible study group. The leader asked their group, and he said this. He said, what would you do if you knew you only had four weeks left before the great judgment day? And lo and behold, different people began to speak up. One gentleman in the class stood up and said, well, I'd go out into the community and minister to the gospel to those who have not yet accepted the Lord into their lives. And the teacher just like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Like, I love that. And what else? And, and then a lady in the corner stood up and she says, well, I, I would dedicate all my remaining time to serving God, my family, my church, and my fellow man with greater conviction. And the teacher said, that, that's wonderful. I must be doing something right here, you know, like to get these kind of responses and finally, there was a gentleman in the back that stood up and said, I'll tell you what I would do. And the teacher said, what would you do? He said, well, I would go to my mother-in-law's house for the four weeks. The group leader, kind of confused, says, well, why your mother-in-law's home? He said, because that will make it the longest four weeks of my life. <laughs> I don't know what's so funny about that, Tammy. My mother-in-law, if you're watching this, I don't get the humor in that joke. Um, um, make sure it lasts as long as possible. 
going to be getting an email from my mother-in-law this time. It's funny in that stuff how sometimes we wrestle and we look at that. Isn't it funny how sometimes people, often maybe spend more time with family, but there is an aspect where a lot of times our response is we, we try to figure out how we can impress God with the last few minutes we have, isn't it? Like, how can we go above and beyond things we never did? And it's really kind of this idea of, like, I want to start living better because I have only a few more time, a little, little bit of time left to, to impress God and do whatever I can. And what's ironic to me is this, is why do we do this? Why do we spend so much time trying to impress God? Because the truth is we see throughout Scripture we're going to look at today is that your religiousness doesn't impress God. And it's something we misunderstand and misconstrue. As a matter of fact, the question today is this, is why religion can't give you meaning? And yet so many people seek religion or religious things or all these things to, to find meaning in our life. And, and honestly, it doesn't provide. And if you've tried searching those things, you found yourself missing. If this confuses you, if you're like, well, I'm kind of confused by what you're getting at, it's because our church has kind of gotten off focus of what matters. We, we put so much focus on religious things that we miss out on what, what does impress God. We've lost track. As a matter of fact, uh, one pastor, a guy named Dr. Bailey Smith, who was actually the former pastor of First Southern Dell City and the former uh, Southern Baptist Convention president, said this. He said, we, being the church, are making A's, as in like a report card, in everything that God doesn't care about. He said, we have excelled in the unimportant. Think about that. We get so focused on, man, if we have a great big church building, we have large attendance, we have great programs, we have dynamic preachers, man, that is impressive. We must be doing something right. And we've excelled in these things, and we measure off these things. In reality, those things don't impress God. They just don't. And yet we put all our stock and all our energy in that. And so the question that we have to come look at today is what does impress God? And it sounds like a very generic answer, but it's one I don't think we really comprehend the depths of is this, and it's kind of our big idea, it is God is impressed by our worship. It's God is impressed by our worship. And I, I want to unpack that, and it'll actually get to the very end of Ecclesiastes before he explains it, but he actually goes through, talks about different ways we try to impress God, but it doesn't actually come through. And so I want you to look at your Bibles. If you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. And beginning last week and on to the next several weeks, he kind of uses these better statements. Like, you've been doing this, but it's better to do this instead. And so kind of pay attention to some of those things, and we'll unpack. So follow along with me. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. It's better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. It says, do not be hasty to speak, and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. You see, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. See, just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow uh, than that you vow and not fulfill it. As a matter of fact, don't, do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Like, why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For, my, for many dreams bring futility or hevel. So do many words. Therefore, fear God. Now, Ecclesiastes, I'm not going to lie, it's kind of hard to unpack. If you just read over it real quick, you miss so much, and it feels like just a rambling of a man just throwing out a whole bunch of things in life. But really, if you begin to dig down, you can see the point he's trying to make. He, he talks about ways we try to impress God, according to Solomon, which may look different contextually, but reality is we do the same thing. So I want to unpack and look. Look at the first part, verses, just verse 1. He, he talks about our sacrifice becoming ritual. 
Now, for us, sacrifice, we don't sacrifice animals as they did in the Old Testament, and, and there's a whole sacrificial system about that, but yet our sacrifice looks different nowadays. Ours comes in the form of service or, or, or even sometimes performance. Like, if I come and serve and I do this, that's my kind of sacrifice to God. And look, look what he says. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And that very word, guard your steps, literally means watch your feet, like before you walk into the temple, the house of God, watch your steps, watch who you are, be careful. He says, walk in with reverence and precaution when you come into the house of God and don't walk in with arrogance. Now, wh- why would he say that? Why, why would he act like that? Because sometimes I think what he talks about is we forget who we're dealing with, whose presence we're walking into. Like look at verse 2, what he says. He, he talks about, he says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. But why would he talk about that? Todd Fisher, who's actually preaching the same sermon, I've kind of gleaned off some of his wish, wisdom, uh, Pastor Emmanuel Baptist and Shawnee said this. He said that idea that God is in heaven and you are on earth is that wherever God is, that there is a distance or a difference between the creator and the created. The point is this, is like God is not your peer. And to walk into his presence as though he's just one of your chum, your buddy, and that we can just walk in with arrogance and that he's going to bow to our fancy and our will is an extreme form of arrogance. There's something other than about God that when we walk in should bring attention that I, he is not like me. While I'm created in his image, there's obviously a stark difference, but yet we walk in with so much arrogance sometimes. Like, God is not my peer. And so what happens, he says, you go into the house of God and, and you offer sacrifices as fools do. Like what does that mean to make a foolish sacrifice? It means they make sacrifices, they make offerings, they serve in ignorance. They, they sacrifice thinking that God cares about the performance of what's going on. It, it's a foolish thing. They, they go through the motions and they think that God wants magic, he wants blood and smoke, and that makes him happy. If I make this sacrifice and I do this, and I do it with a, a just passionate plea, and what I do, man, God is going to be impressed by that, and look what I do. And God's like, that, that's a foolish thing to do. It's completely empty. You've robbed all the meaning of what's what you're doing. It's no different than you going serving the needy and all doing it just so you can get applause, so you can be recognized and acknowledged. And we miss the meaning of what's going on. And he's like, that's a, that's a foolish sacrifice. Like, you're not getting the applause from anybody but man around you because God's not taking notice of that. And it's empty. And see, what they're doing is wrong. It was about the show. It wasn't about the heart. Do you, you understand what he's talking about here? It's a foolish thing to do. <laughs> hey, that's what I'm talking about right there. See, now you guys are like, man, what was he talking about that I'm listening? Uh, we're going to have to make that a little more difficult next week, I think. I love it. He's, he says this. He says, they ignorantly do wrong. These people make sacrifices fools do, and they ignorantly do wrong. When I first read that, it's like, well, they don't know any better, right? That they make sacrifice, they do the stuff, and they just don't know any better. But reality, it's not that they don't know any better, but they've conditioned their heart to such a point that they can't even recognize evil when it's in their presence. That they become so accustomed to coming church and playing the game and serving out of of just not responsibility duty, but out of just so I can get something back out of it, that they miss it, that what they're doing is accomplishing actually nothing. I, I think of this situation where I got to talk to the pastor at Gateway, Daryl Rennigan, man, he's a great guy, can't wait to serve and do stuff with him. But he came from a church plant in Massachusetts, and as we're sitting talking over coffee, he says, man, it's crazy, in Massachusetts, where I was serving at and where I was working at, he goes, there was not a single evangelical church within a 30-mile radius of where we started one. He said, you think about that, that covers most of Oklahoma City, almost to Norman, all these different places, not a single evangelical church. I said, man, there was not a single church anywhere in any of those places. He goes, no, there were churches, 
I said, educate me, man. I'm going to be honest. Like, what do you mean by evangelical church then? He says, no, he said, you had churches there, but you had churches that were preaching that there was no such thing as hell and that you could do all this sorts of stuff. That they were getting together and worshiping God, but creating a God of their own liking to fit their fancy. And not even realizing that what they do is they were affirming evil among one another. And he says, we, we've lost track of what's going on here. Condition ourselves to do that. And so what does he say to do? He says, listen, better. He uses one of those better statements. He says, better to approach in obedience. That word obedience is the Hebrew word shema. It means to listen. It's an obediently listening. He says, better to approach and listen in obedience than to offer sacrifices full dues. He's saying it's better to contribute nothing and listen than to contribute anything at all. Like, it's crazy to hear him say that. I, I think of an old TV show that I remember watching growing up and stuff was Family Matters with Steve Urkel. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And he, what was his famous line? Did I do that? Right? He messes everything up. And when on one of the episodes, he's helping Carl Winslow do this task, and Steve Urkel messes everything up. He just can't get it right. And he's trying to help. He's making things work. And Carl Winslow says this, Steve, I need you to do me a favor. He says, get your hands. Put them up. He puts them up. He says, now put them behind you. Now sit on your hands. He goes, what do you do? He goes, just listen. He goes, I can't help that way. He goes, but at least you might learn something. In reality, sometimes what he's saying here is like, listen, this is not the living, like, how do I know I'm doing well? I come and just don't do anything at just listening. He's like, set this is the lowest, you, the bare minimum. At least if you came and didn't do anything and just sat and listened, you would get a lot more than trying to contribute something in an empty ritualistic way. Now, don't walk away here like Eric said, I don't have to do anything anymore. Like, this is great. You're missing the point. It's like, this is like the absolute low of low standards you could go to. Better contribute nothing and listen. And so we offer these empty ritual sacrifices. And I think in your own life, you can probably think of ways we do that, don't we? Where we go through these motions, we go through these things, we do stuff just so we can seek applause. And so he says these rituals, these serving with emptiness, you miss out on the whole meaning and you just make yourself to be a fool. But he keeps going, look at verse 2. He says, not only that, he says our prayers also become lectures. Our prayers kind of become performances to God. Look what he says. It says, do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. That, that word literally means don't be quick with your mouth and hasty in your heart. Don't be quick with your mouth to tell God what you need. Already have your mind made up when you come and talk to God what you're going to address with them. Like if you connect it to verse 1, listen, they're making this sacrifice, this offering, and then they're coming to God saying, hey God, you remember what I did? Now let me tell you what I want. It's a bargaining chip is what they're doing. They're trying to bargain with God. As a matter of fact, he, I mean, you see it, it's this idea of telling versus talking. Let me tell you what I need. Let me tell you and you listen to me. Bow to my women fancy rather than listening to what God has to say. And they try to bargain with God. Can, can I tell you something? Listen, we, we are in no position to bargain with God. And how often do we do that? Like, God, I've been so faithful. I've served all these years in ministry. I've done this. Where's mine? You, you identify with that? If you don't, you're not living in the season we're living in right now, then probably with COVID, what's going on. God, I've been faithful. What's going on? Why can't I have this fear? Why can't you do this for me? Why haven't you come and delivered? Like, don't you remember all I've done? Like, look at my service. Look at my sacrifice. Now let me tell you what I need, and you come and deliver and come provide. And we bargain with God, and we fall short. And that's where he says, like, listen, you don't under, again, he goes back, he says, God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Like, understand who you're talking to. Show some reverence, respect. He, he goes on to, verse 3, a, a proverb of that day. He says, this is just as dreams accompany much labor so also a fool's voice comes with many words 
Many scholars believe this is a proverb that was familiar to Solomon and the people this time. It has this idea. Dreamers are, are people who have much to do but yet nothing to accomplish, right? There's all this stuff. Man, I can't wait to do this. And they dream about doing all sorts of stuff. If you don't know what that looks like, come to my house and talk to me and my wife about the stuff we want to do at our house. Oh, we can't wait to remodel this. We can't wait to put new tile on the floor. We can't wait to do this. We can't wait to accomplish all this stuff. We dream about all this stuff. And all it does is create a laundry list of items that never get accomplished. And can I tell you something? every house we've lived at we've had a laundry list of stuff and we're always talking about what we do and he says just as dreamers have this laundry list of stuff and yet nothing gets accomplished he says a fool a blabber someone who talks too much has much to say with no meaning in the words it's very similar in what's going on he says listen we, we do all this talking we do all this telling we, we discourse to God not in a conversation but in the more or less telling him hey this is what you do and, and we accomplish nothing <laughs> that's what I like to hear. Yeah, you guys, Dave, where are you at, my friend? Yeah. Hey, Marilyn, when we get done, we're going to have an invitation. Please make sure he walks to the front, would you? Ultimately, he's saying this. He's saying this. He's saying it's better to keep quiet, better to keep quiet and seem wise than speak and prove that you're a fool. It's, it's better to just keep your mouth shut and just sitting, I don't know, are you aiming memeing me or what? <laughs> I, he's saying, listen, it's better just to sit and keep your mouth shut and just listen than to speak and make yourself seem so ignorant. I think of a situation in my life, like one of the wisest men I think I can be around is my, one of my first pastors I served with, a guy named Mike Taylor. And, and to talk to him was, well, it was difficult. You would say, Mike, how are you doing? You, you doing all right? And he would do this. He'd go, doing well and the whole time like is he just slow not understanding my question or is he and he processed everything like that And here's the thing I don't know if Mike was extremely wise or extremely foolish but the way he approached him he never just blabbed stuff out he wait he listened he processed I'm like there is some wisdom to this man right here and sometimes when God's like if you just come and keep your mouth shut maybe at least you would seem wise rather than proving yourself a fool by talking all the same if I don't say anything at least I might hear something now again He's not saying this is what you should do. He's saying, listen, at the bare minimum, if you can't get that right, do this. And he keeps going. So not only he says our, our sacrifice become ritual, not only does our prayer become a lecture, but the last part you see in verse 4 through 7 is our vows become lies. They become empty promises. Look what he says. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. That, that's interesting. He says, when you make a promise, when you make a vow to God, don't, don't delay in doing it because you make yourself look like a fool. How does it make look like a fool by making promises to God but not fulfilling them? It's because God knows your heart before you've ever made the promise. Hey, God, I'll do this. And God's like, no, you won't. No, no, God, I promise. Like, listen, if you just give me this, me and my family will get plugged into church and do this. God's like, no, you won't. No, no, if you just give me what I need here, if you just come and deliver, I will serve more, I will love you. And, I'll, and God's like, no, you won't. I know your heart. And we make these empty promises and we prove ourselves to be full like God knows our true intentions. And not just that, you see it says after that, um, where is it? Verse 6 says, do not let your mouth bring guilt on you. Do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Many scholars debate whether the messenger is actually a messenger from God or, or one of the temple priests. But what happens is you make this promise to God, and when God sends a messenger to cash in on the vow, the promise you make, you're like, whoa, I didn't make that promise to God. No, no, sorry, there must be some mistake. And all we do is put on a performance. All it is is about show so other people can see what we're doing. 
And in the process, all this does is make us feel and become guilty. You make promises to God you never deliver. And what happens? All the work you did do is suddenly nullified because you've undid everything. Hey, God, I'll do all this sort of stuff and you don't deliver when there might be a few things you did do, but because you lied about that, you kind of made yourself guilty in the process. I equate this to with my kids. I can do great time. I can spend all the time in the world and I'll say, hey, guys, you know what? Tonight, Daddy's going to take you guys out for ice cream. And we'll have fun all day and I'll spend quality time with them and enjoying stuff. But you know what? When it comes to the end of the night and suddenly it's that night, hey, guys, it's time for bed. What do they remember? Hey, Dad, you said you're going to take us to get ice cream. Ah, oh, we can't tonight. Everything I did before was almost nullified because I did not follow through on my promise. If, if you're not a parent shaking your head, you, you need to teach me a class on what this looks like, obviously. Like, listen, we, we, we find ourselves not coming through. And so what he's ultimately saying, he has another better than statement uh, in verse 5. He says, better that you do not vow than you vow not fulfill it. He's saying, listen, it, it kind of like this. He's like, it's better just to start the bar so low that you have nowhere to go but up. Start a place where you don't make any promises, so anything you do do, like, impresses God. Like, you come in like, wow, that, that's amazing. He, he didn't even act like he was going to do that. Now listen, again, this is not the bar where you're like, man, that's, that's a litmus test. I need to come and not promise or do anything, and God will be pleased with me. God's like, listen, if you want to get something right, here's the bare minimum you can do. It's not the standard. It's the lowest setting. So the question is this. How do we impress God? Well, it comes in at the very last thing he says. Look what he says. He says, for many dreamers bring futility, so do mean words. He says, but therefore, so what's the answer? Therefore, fear God. It's our praise. It's our worship. Fear God is such an interesting term that we sometimes struggle with. It doesn't mean just necessarily stark fear. It means kind of a reverence at all. To, to, best kind of, to, to actually to try to illustrate but still fall short, I want to show you this first picture. Go ahead and put that first picture up. That scares me to death right there. I am like deathly terrified of sharks. Like it's not even funny. Like here, here's how bad it is. I used to go practice swimming and stuff. I say practice because I couldn't do it right, but swim at Mitch Park and stuff. And, and I literally, if I was the only person in the pool, I would swim and I would get scared and get out because in my mind I had Jaws just playing in the background. Like there's a fear. Why? Because this animal is terrifying, right? It can destroy you. Like it actually, I have nightmares about it. I have, I told the youth this when I first came, they would send me shark pics like every other day trying to freak me out. They thought it was funny. Thank goodness adults are more responsible than that until after this sermon when you guys start Sending me pictures. Now, I show you that because there should be something that should strike fear. This is a creature. This is a predator of the sea. But yet, look at the next picture. You see that. And that is an actual person swimming that close to this massive, absolutely massive great white shark. And I've watched some videos. Like, it terrifies me, but I'm fascinated at the same time. And as I watched this lady, she spent years learning about sharks, watching, learning their customs to the point that she swims with them right next to them, literally holds their fin as they go. Now, here's the thing. She knows at any moment that animal could tear her to shreds, but she spent so much time watching that she knows it won't. She understands it. She has a sense of reverence. Like, any moment it could, but it won't. Like, listen, when we approach God, there needs to be something similar to that in the sense of, listen, God has, a, we're talking to the creator of the heavens and of the earth, and to act like we can just walk into his presence like it's nothing with just absolute arrogance, we miss. Like, listen, they were terrified back then that if you just got a glimpse of God's glory, you would fall dead on the spot. Every time you see where they encounter God, where they said, woe is me. Like, I should not be alive right now. You see, our reverence for God, our respect and admiration should point us to a place of worship. To where we see, we know who he is, but yet what he allows us to do, and my response is worship. Man, that is amazing. I, I'm, I'm not worthy I don't deserve this. The, the difference, you say, well, how is sacrifice, how is prayer, how is making vows not worship? The, the difference is, is our focus. 
Listen to what uh, Dr. Thomas Constable of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary said. He said, worship has to do with God. But we have a constant tendency to shift that focus elsewhere. For example, entertainment, dynamic services. One another, great connecting groups. Or, or growing the church, larger attendance. You see, all those are focused on ourselves, our achievements. But worship is about God. And we get off track and we sometimes think it's all about us. Can I say this? Listen, when, when our praise is authentic, our response becomes authentic. You don't believe me, there's two stories in Scripture in the New Testament of what happened. Luke chapter 19. I don't want you to turn there, I just want you to listen. A man named Zacchaeus. It says this, he entered, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus who was also a chief tax collector, which if you don't know, that means chief sinner of them all back then. And he was rich, means he was very good at taking away from people. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down, welcomed him joyfully. But all who began to complain said, isn't he going to stay with a sinful man? But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him, because he too is the son of Adam, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. You, you have a man who did not come and start trying to offer and show how awesome. Look, look at my accomplishments. He simply had an interaction and experience with God and what happened. It led him to worship that led to sacrifice. Now I tell you that because I contrast that with the story of another man who was a rich man. And I've lost my place. Here it is. It says, as he was setting on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the teacher said, what? Well, I've kept all these things from my youth. Look at what I've done. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by his demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions. Do you see the difference? You have one man who comes and experiences God and says, listen, take it all. I've seen what is good. I, I don't want it anymore. Another man who's like, I just want your good things. Like, what do I have to do? Oh, I've done all that. Well, I want you to give up this. Well, you know what? I, I wasn't really going to promise that. This is the area of my life's untouchable. Can I say this? Listen, when we truly worship our God, our authentic response is to sacrifice. When we truly worship God, our authentic response is prayer. When we truly worship God, our authentic response is immediate surrender. And too often in church, we try to practice orthopraxy before orthodoxy. It means living a right way rather than understanding who God is. Once we come and worship and admire, like, this is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he wants to have a relationship with me. When I worship him in that moment, all my actions that flow from that are right. But when we get it backwards, something always gets out of whack. You, you want to know what impresses God? It's not you coming to church on a regular attendance. It's not your great tithes. It's not your great service. It's not all your good deeds. It's not your efforts. It's simply acknowledging and knowing who he is and letting all your responses flow out of that. What impresses God is your worship. And so as Brian comes up to play, I want you just to process that because somewhere in church we, we've gotten off track is what the, Dr. Stanley said. He said, we've, we're making A's in all the things that don't impress God. You might be the model Christian, but listen, if you don't authentically worship God, you're off track. 
my, my question to you is this, real quick. Think about this. Who are you trying to impress? You, you might be coming here trying to live perfect, trying to live like, hey, look at me, look at what I'm doing, and you mistreat. Listen, it's, it's about just coming and admiring God. Like, God, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of you. And I'm, thank you for loving me so much. I struggle with that. I try to look good, try to accomplish so much on my own. And let me tell you something, God does not find any joy in my service. Me getting up and preparing the best sermon possible, if it's not driven out of a heart of worship, it's all a waste. It really is. God can still use my empty rituals, my empty habits to lead to your life changes, stuff like that. But what I gain is absolutely nothing. What impresses God is when I'm authentically changed by what I've seen in him. And everything in me wants to change because of that. Where are you starting from? And so wherever you're at, I'm going to ask you to do this. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to ask you just to respond in faith. I think one of our elders will be over here to, to pray with you if you want that. If you need someone just to come and encourage you, I, I ask you to come do that. Maybe today you need to authentically worship God. You need to strip away everything that you've been focusing on. Maybe you need to quit trying to bargain with God. Like, God, look at all I've done. Where's mine? And you just need to come say, God, where, what else can I give? What's yours? My desire is our worship would start being authentic. And so with your head bowed, eyes closed, if you, if you need to come and start just in a relationship with Jesus Christ, like that's a place you need to start from, listen, uh, one of our elders would be over here and they'd love nothing more than to come and share that truth with you. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to the Lord today. Rededication is just a fancy way of saying, listen, I've messed up and I want to start anew today. It's not a re-salvation. It's not getting saved again. It's repentance at its finest. Maybe, maybe that's where you're at. But I challenge you to respond however you need to.